Today we continue our study in Paul's letter to the saints that were living in Philippi, and it's really his letter to the saints living here in Little Rock, the saints here at Covenant. And today we'll be looking at the first three verses of chapter 3. Uh, this really is a section, verse 1 in chapter 3, all the way through verse 11. But verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul establishes the principle, and then in 4 through 11, he actually uses his own life as an example of that principle. Now we're skipping over chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. I'm going to leave that with you to read based on what we've already studied in Philippians, and in particular what we looked at in verses 12 through 18. Uh, verses 19 through 30 provide two examples of saints living the obedient life. And so today we'll be looking at Philippians 3, 1 through 3. Take your Bibles, turn there, and let me read that for us. Before we do, I want to commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need God the Holy Spirit to work on our hearts so that we rightly hear and understand your word. I need God the Holy Spirit to work in my heart and through my words to be faithful and to accurately represent the teaching of your word. We need you. And so we ask you to work and illuminate the very word of God to us even today. In Christ's name. Amen. Philippians 3, 1 through 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in in the flesh. The word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect, reviving the souls. And we trust God to use his word to revive our souls even today. We do have a three-point outline. You'll find it on page five. We want to look today at the appeal, the warning, and also the identity. But before we do, I'm going to have a little bit of an extended introduction because I want to address the principle that Paul speaks about here in these verses and then we'll get to this threefold outline. Well, in my former life, that is before I became a pastor, I was a chemist. And my life included formulas. That's very much what my life was about in the lab, taking X and adding it to Y under the right conditions, hoping that it would not explode. You may not know this, but my, my research project uh, dealt with uh, chemicals that didn't like one another and didn't like water, and if I wasn't careful, I could uh, blow up the lab. And so it took a great deal of faith in the lab for me. But the idea was to take X, add it to Y, and hopefully you get Z in the right amount of you. I just dealt with formulas all the time, and I thought, okay, so I'm going to seminary, no more formulas, wrong. My life is still about formulas. <laughs> it says it's not formulas that are in the world of chemistry. These are formulas that in, are in the world of theology and biblical studies. Now, I want to be careful here that any formula that I might use to depict 
a theological truth or a biblical truth is going to be insufficient to accurately give the meaning of that doctrine. It's just a way for me in a simple formula to get at the essence of what Paul might be saying. And so today we're going to look at two formulas, one bad formula, one that really does cause somewhat of an explosion in one's life that results in destruction. We'll look at another formula that is a glorious formula. It's a formula that that this formula represents what we've already sung about and talked about and prayed about uh, so much uh, today already. But Paul contrasts two types of people in these, these three verses. And in contrasting two types of people, he really shows two very different views of the gospel. One view that is biblical, one view that is false. And so we want to look today at these two formulas just as far as the introduction goes before we dive in uh, to the text uh, proper and look at our our three points, and Lord willing, we'll be able to get through this in just a short bit. But the first formula is this. The first formula represents the hope that we have in Jesus. And here's the formula. Jesus, in parentheses, grace, plus no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in the flesh equals the hope that we have in the gospel of grace for, sa- for the salvation of sinners, for our salvation. Jesus plus no confidence in the flesh equals the true gospel, we could say. That's the first formula. No confidence in the flesh is Paul's term. He uses it at the end of verse 3. Flesh here means the physical body. And, it's in the, and Paul uses the term flesh here in the context of circumcision, cutting away a part of the physical body. It's also used to refer to life before Christ and life lived outside of Christ. That also is the meaning or one of the meanings of the term flesh. So before a person comes to Christ, that person's living in the flesh. A person that hasn't come to Christ, that hasn't been united to Christ in saving faith, is living in the flesh, by the flesh, according to the flesh, living outside of Christ, still dead in their sins and trespasses. And so this formula that I just gave you, Jesus plus no confidence in the flesh, equals the true gospel, represents the true gospel. We could really say Jesus plus nothing, but we need to be careful there. Nothing meaning putting no confidence or putting no trust in anything else to save us. It's Jesus alone. Jesus is enough. Jesus is the one who satisfies. The formula represents one being saved and being part of the true people of God through faith alone. By grace alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and for the glory of God alone. Do those five things sound familiar to you? Wonderful summary of the gospel. Wonderful summary of this formula. Jesus plus no confidence in the flesh equals the hope of the gospel for the salvation of sinners. Isn't that glorious? That's the gospel. 
represented by very imperfect formula because the gospel is so much more than my little formula. A distinction between what is necessary for salvation and what determines salvation is very helpful here, I believe. Human effort, by the way, is necessary for salvation. Did I say that? (laughs) I did, because it's true. It's necessary for salvation. Why? Well, let me explain it this way. We must respond to the gospel offer. We must respond in repentance and faith. We must walk in obedience. We must cooperate with God in sanctification. Christ's work, however, is the determining factor. You see, human will is necessary. I'm called to respond. But Christ's work is determinative. If I respond and Christ hasn't worked, I'm not saved, (laughs) right? Christ's work is determinative. God saves us. He elects us according to his will. He effectually calls us. He justifies us. He adopts us. He sanctifies us. And eventually, he will glorify us when we all go to be with him in heaven. And he does all of that based on the merits of Christ Jesus. Christ's saving work, Christ's person and work, is the determining factor in our salvation. Jesus' all-sufficient work saves, and that alone. Nothing else is needed. He has done everything necessary for our salvation. Nothing is to be added to his atoning work. And our confidence is placed on that very fact. Our confidence rests on the person and work of Jesus Christ. His all-sufficiency as the Savior. And nothing else. We must not put any confidence in the flesh by adding human work, religious ritual, or anything else to the all-sufficient work of Christ to save us. It's by Christ and through Christ and Him alone. That's the first formula. Got it? All right, second formula. It's quite different. All right, here we go. Second formula. Jesus plus confidence in the flesh. Jesus plus confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh being practicing the rite of circumcision, cutting away a part of the body, or any other aspect of the ceremonial law, any aspect of personal works, righteousness, any aspect of human performance to enhance our standing before God does not equal the gospel for the salvation of sinners. It equals, as Paul says, a different gospel, a distorted gospel. So you have one formula, Jesus plus no confidence in the flesh. You have a second formula, Jesus plus confidence in the flesh. And that's what Paul is distinguishing here 
in these three verses. In fact, Paul in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, and Philippians 3, 1 through 11, and the whole letter to the Galatians go together. I mean, Paul is basically dealing with the same issue. He's making the same theological points. And in Galatians 1, 6 through 7, Paul confronts the Judaizers for distorting the gospel. And Peter, the apostle Peter, had aligned himself with these Judaizers. And Paul confronts Peter. It's just astounding to me. Just 13 years earlier, Peter, who's on the rooftop before he goes to see Cornelius, and what comes down from heaven but the sheet with all those animals on it. Take and eat, Peter. Have at it, man. There are no more. Don't call unclean what God has called clean. And then Peter goes right there and goes to a Gentile's home and evangelizes him and converts his whole family. Acts chapter 9 and 10, I believe. So now, 13 years later, Peter is in Galatia and he's aligning himself with these Judaizers who view themselves as Christians and who are saying, hey, listen, you've got to believe in Jesus plus add the ceremonial aspects of the law to be right before God, to be accepted as a Christian. And Peter had bought into that. And Paul confronts him about that. And Paul says in verse 6, I'm astonished, Galatians 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, the problem in Galatians was faith in Christ plus circumcision, plus don't go associate with those unclean Gentiles, plus eat this and don't eat that, plus, plus, plus. And Paul said, man, that is no gospel at all. Jesus was not enough for the Judaizers. And Jesus, at that moment in Galatia, Jesus was not enough for the Apostle Peter either. Now let me ask you a question. Is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough for me? Then why do we keep on trying to do things to make ourselves look good before other people and before him? Why do we try to enhance our standing before God? Hey, God, look at me. I'm such a good Christian. I'm in church. I actually take notes during the sermon, which is good. I appreciate you doing that. Some of the best notes I've, I've seen for my sermons have been from children. That's great. So is Jesus enough for us? That's what Paul's asking here. The formula that I just described, Jesus plus confidence in the flesh, is works-based. The first formula, Jesus plus no confidence in the flesh, is grace-based. By the way, if you try to add something to the gracious work of God, then you destroy grace, don't you? <laughs> grace is, is a free gift. Grace is unmerited favor. 
towards sinners. It's, I was talking with someone about this the other day about grace, it's, it, and they, they made a good point. It's, it is unmerited favor towards sinners. That's the technical definition of it. All the theologians agree with that. But it's basic. But 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 it's not just that we ha- it's unmerited favor. We have demerits. <laughs> you know, he shows grace to us even with all of our demerits, even with all of our deficiencies. But you get the point. We try to add stuff to grace. It's no longer grace. And the distinction between these two views of the gospel, these two types of people, is so important that Paul, in in verse 1, warns the Philippians about the opponents to the gospel, these Judaizers, like we find in the book, in the letter to the Galatians. He warns them because they're opponents of the gospel, they distort the gospel, and for their safety, Paul warns them. Now let's look quickly at, at these three points, and I'm really going to have to go quickly here. First of all, the appeal. Verse 1, Paul appeals to the Philippians in the form of exhortation, rejoice in the Lord. It just seems strange to me that Paul says, rejoice, starts by saying, finally rejoice in the Lord, and then he gets into all this business about the opponents and warnings and that sort of thing. But there's a purpose to it. I want to show you the purpose. Paul finds it necessary to address important matters, foundational issues of orthodoxy, so that the Philippians will even more understand the hope of the gospel and the salvation of sinners. So he begins with finally. Not that he's bringing a closure to the letter. We've got the rest of chapter 3 and the whole of chapter 4 to go. But that finally there really should be understood as furthermore. In other words, verse 1 finally is to underscore the importance of what he's about to say. And he states that it's no trouble at all for me to write these same things to you. In other words, Paul is saying, it's no trouble at all for me to go over again what I've already taught you in this letter thus far and in the time that I've been with you and I have instructed you. It's no problem at all. Why? Because it's for your safety. It's for your spiritual protection that I remind you of the gospel, the true gospel. Well, how do we understand the exhortation to rejoice? You know, we find joy in many things, don't we? There are a lot of great things for which give us joy in this world. Some bad things too, but there are a lot of good things. But yet, Paul is saying here that there's one thing above all other things that cause us to overflow with joy. And it is this, that our joy is in the Lord, His gracious work, His all-sufficient work. To save us. And when you think about it, it makes sense that Paul starts with joy because what he's really talking about is the ultimately is the joy that we have in knowing that we can place our confidence in Christ and his work is all sufficient to save us. The false doctrine of the opponents in verse 2 will always result in bondage, heartache, and destruction. Jesus plus confidence in the flesh equals no joy. Our joy is in what Paul describes in verse 3. Jesus plus no confidence in the flesh equals the hope and joy of the gospel for the salvation of sinners like you and me. There, There will always be those who embrace a false gospel who will try to encourage us to accept it. In verse 1, Paul says it is for our joy and for our safety, our spiritual protection, that he issues this warning about those who oppose the gospel of Christ. Now to the second 
item on your outline. His appeal, he exhorts them to rejoice because of the hope they have in Christ Jesus, whose all-sufficient work will save. Now he warns them of the opponents of the gospel to live according to the flesh. You may remember that in October of last year, the session sent out a letter of concern warning the congregation about a conference that was going to be held here in Little Rock, hosted or put on by Jen Hatmaker. There's much concern that we had about Jen Hatmaker's slide from traditional evangelical understanding of the gospel into what is a troubling and false gospel. And so we found it necessary to warn you not to go to that conference out of concern for the spiritual welfare of this congregation. Paul does a similar thing here in verse 2. He warns them. He not only warns them, he warns them three times. Look out, look out, look out. Beware, beware, beware. Warning, warning, warning. Anytime you see duplicates or triplicates of words in the Bible, it really is to get our attention. Pay attention. So, for example, Isaiah 6, holy, 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 pay attention, God is holy, Jesus in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Paul does a similar thing here. Look out, three times. The threat is real. The warning is clear. The opponents are dangerous. They're dangerous to the spiritual well-being of the saints in Philippi, and the, and the enemies of the gospel today are dangerous to our well-being, too. That's why one of the responsibilities of this session, and really one of the responsibilities of each of us in light of one another, is to, is to be quick to warn when we see danger to our souls. Now, how does he warn? Pay attention, look out for the opponents of the gospel, they... Can you believe this? They are dogs. <laughs> oh, my. We all love our pets. Well, if you have a pet, you probably love your pet. But dogs were different in the ancient world. The Greco-Roman culture viewed dogs as scavengers. One, one theologian said it this way. They were zoological lowlifes. And maybe some of you think that <laughs> of dogs as well. Jews view dogs as unclean, and they often call Gentiles dogs because they were unclean. The Judaizers here and in Galatia are, are Jews that viewed themselves as being Christians, but who distorted the gospel by demanding that all Christians observe the Old Testament ceremonial law, in particular circumcision and the dietary laws. And Paul shows that by the Judaizers trying to make Gentile Christians clean by saying you've got to be circumcised to be a clean Christian, to be really acceptable before God, Paul kind of twists that around and actually designates these Judaizers as unclean dogs. He also says, look out, be careful, for the opponents of the gospel are evil workers, those who try to make Gentile Christians submit to the ceremonial law to add works to Christ are not workers for the sake of righteousness, but they're, they're workers for iniquity, causing others to sin. Psalm 6, 8, depart from me, 
all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. And then he says, look out, beware, look out, the opponents, they are mutilators of the flesh. And Paul does something very interesting here. He uses the Greek word that is translated circumcision, that is to cut around. The same idea is in the Old Testament understanding of circumcision, to cut away flesh. He uses the root of that word, he modifies it slightly, and it means an incision or to cut into pieces or to mutilate. And Paul uses some of the strongest language against the Judaizers in the book of Galatians. He condemns them, Galatians 1, 8 through 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached, let him be accursed, let him be damned, is the actual translation of that. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one received, let him be accursed, let him be anathematized. Strong language. And then, even stronger, Galatians 5.12. I wish those who unsettle you. He's talking about the, the Judaizers here. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Mutilate themselves. That's strong language. That's how serious this threat was. That's how profound this warning is to be taken. Verse 2 means those who live by the flesh and demand the Gentiles submit outward circumcision and forsake the true circumcision of the heart, make themselves unclean, work iniquity, and mutilate or destroy the hope of the gospel of grace and are enemies of God. They are not part of the true people of God. In fact, Paul calls these Judaizers false brothers. They're not Christian. He calls them false brothers in Galatians. And this brings us to verse 3 and the last point about identity. We are, verse 3, the circumcision, the true people of God. How in the way? <laughs> verse 2, Paul speaks against this idea of circumcision, and he speaks so strongly against the Judaizers who were demanding circumcision in, in the book of, of Galatians, and now he says we are the circumcision. What on earth does he mean? And three scriptures show us what Paul means. Dan read from Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'll just repeat verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise, not, not your physical flesh, but will spiritually circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Romans 2, chapter 28 through 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew, a true Jew, a true member of God's covenant people is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, that is the letter of the law. His praise is not from man but from God. Then Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, referring to outward physical circumcision, counts for anything but only faith working through love. And so outward circumcision in the Old Testament was replaced by the sacrament of baptism in the New. And they do function importantly in the lives of God's people as outward circumcision in Old Testament Israel and now 
the fulfillment of that and baptism in the New Testament do function as a sign and a seal of the coming of grace. They are outward signs that point to an inward spiritual reality, the circumcision of the heart, regeneration, justification, what God does spiritually to save a person, cutting away that old dead heart and giving a new living heart for God. And so those who are circumcised in the heart, verse 3, live by the Spirit through faith. See what Paul is doing here? Verse 2, those who live according to the flesh. Verse 3, those who live according to the Spirit. Those who rely on outward circumcision to enhance their standing before God. Those who rely on the Spirit. Those who rely on God's work to circumcise the heart. Those who rely on grace. Two very different things. For the opponents of the gospel in verse 2 are described as dogs, workers of evil, and mutilators. The true people of God in verse 3 are contrasted as those who live by the Spirit. And they're described as worshiping by the Spirit. That is, they serve God and they're devoted to Him in the power of the Spirit. Secondly, they're described as that they glory in Christ. Their boast is not in the flesh. Their boast is in the cross of Christ. And they put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. The gospel of grace is Jesus plus no confidence in the flesh. That equals the hope of the gospel for the salvation of sinners. Jesus is all sufficient for your salvation and for mine. Jesus is enough. Do you believe that? Jesus is enough? Come on, do you believe it? I need to hear some amens here. You guys, I don't know if you believe it or not. And I'm not just being silly. I think if we were to have a little meter on us that said, I, I believe Jesus is enough, and it was to register every minute of every day, that, that rascal would indicate that there are a whole lot of times we really don't buy into this, that Jesus is enough. Renee and I went out to have a nice evening meal at a nice restaurant, and we were there eating our grilled salmon, which is one of our favorite things to get out, and just having a good time together. And the waiter came up, and said this, someone has taken care of your meal. I was like, whoa, surprised, grateful. And I said, are you sure? He said, yeah, it's all taken care of. You don't need to do anything else. You know what I did? Well, come on, let me just, I need to pay, pay something. I didn't have cash, I had to use a credit card. Maybe I need to live a tip. No, the waiter said. <laughs> it's all taken care of. You don't need to pay anything. And I couldn't get that through my head. Finally, the waiter convinced me that the expense of the meal, including the tip, had been taken care of, had been paid in full. And what was paid was sufficient. I didn't owe anything else except to enjoy and to rest, and to be grateful. Sounds like Jesus plus no confidence in the 
flesh equals the hope of the gospel for the salvation of sinners. Let's pray. Father, I just pray for myself and for these dear ones here today that daily, maybe even moment by moment, you would remind us that Jesus is enough. That indeed, uh, he is our resting place. That our hope is in him and rests on him and nothing less or else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.